Good morning again, Chili Bible. You know, I've discovered something that whenever you are in the middle of a big project, one of the most important phases of that project comes when you are almost done. Almost done. Now, I, I won't bring Karen up here to testify, but I will say this, that in my house, a great many home improvement projects get 90% of the way finished, right? Um, you know, in fact, they begin with great enthusiasm and energy, and I am 90% done within days or weeks, but that last 10% might be months or years later that they finally get done, right? A lot of times, in fact, uh, when, when do you finish uh, projects around the house? When you sell it, right? That's when they get done, right? Because it's like, oh, well, I always needed to caulk that little seam right there, and I never got it done, but we got the realtor coming, so here we go, right? Get the spackle out, and uh, we're going to make that happen. Um, I know I'm not the only person in, in, in that category, but that last phase, when you're almost done, is where a lot of times projects fall down, right? Uh, or, or if you're a student, we're all familiar with the phenomenon known as senioritis, right? Where a, a student gets to their senior year, or maybe the last semester of their senior year, and they just stop caring whatsoever about anything that is going on at school. I, I'm, this is my last year. I'm almost done and they just kind of mail it in for the rest of the year. Whatever is the minimum required to get across the finish line and graduate, I'll do that. Um, very few people work as hard at their jobs at the end of their career there as they did at the beginning, amen? And lots and lots of races are won and lost, not in the, in the long run, but in the last few yards before the take. Now, uh, I bring all that up because this morning we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 6. And we're going to see Nehemiah confront four different challenges that come with his great calling of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem being almost done. In fact, we're going to see him finish, and we'll see that uh, uh, while a great many circumstances and people stand in his way and attempt to pull him away from the mission that God has given him, that Nehemiah remains focused, and he fearlessly fulfills his calling by relying on the Lord until his job is done. And there is, I think, a lot for us to learn as God's people uh, as we begin the process, we are beginning the process of rebuilding our ministry here at Chili Bible. Uh, and so I want to invite you to turn with me over to Nehemiah chapter 6 and to follow along as I read God's Word. If you would like to stand and are able to uh, read God's Word for us. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the, up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, 
let us meet together at Hakathirim in the plains of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. And in the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king, and you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports, so come and let us take counsel together. And then I said to him, saying, No such thing as you say has been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should a man such as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. And for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember, sent Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in the 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife, and they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, we are not called to rebuild walls around a city in a place. But we are called to rebuild ministry here in this place and to Make disciples of all nations, beginning in our own houses, beginning in our own neighborhoods, in our own church, in our own community where we are, and rippling out from there to make disciples of all nations around the world. And Father, we have been impeded in that process over this last year. But Father, your word and your Holy Spirit are powerful. In fact, they are almighty. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit and your word, you would speak to us today, your servants. Help us to understand what you are saying to us from your word and, and help us by your Holy Spirit to live it out. 
Help us, Father, as we rebuild to fearlessly fulfill our calling in this generation until we go home or until Jesus comes back for us. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, there are four challenges that Nehemiah confronts as he is almost done rebuilding. Uh, and I want to show you the first one in verses 1 to 4. In verses uh, 1 through 4, what we see is Nehemiah fearlessly fulfilling his calling by disregarding distractions. Uh, in verse 1, we find out two important things. That First of all, the wall at, around the city at this point is built up uh, to the point where there are no gaps remaining. We don't know how close it is to final height, but it is built up in such a way there are no breaches, no gaps anywhere uh, where an enemy could come through, uh, but that the doors have not been set in the gates yet. And so they're just about the point where once they set those doors, they can, they can shut everything out, all their enemies, and be secure. And then they can keep building up taller until they're done. Uh, so they're almost done. And the second thing we learn from verse 1 is that Nehemiah's enemies have heard about all their progress in rebuilding, and they can see what Nehemiah can see, that the finish line is within sight. And there are only a few days, maybe weeks of labor left. And their enemies all know it. And so they decide, well, I tell you what we need to do. We need to pull Nehemiah off the job. We need to get him away from there, and uh, we'll just call a meeting. So let's invite Nehemiah to a meeting, uh, and he knows these guys do not have my best interest in mind. Because after all, these are the same guys who have at various points tried to organize mobs to come and kill him and all of the workers. So these are not people that you can just peacefully sit down with and be completely uh, at peace in that setting, right? But on top of that, I, you know, they present it, I think, as, as being like this. Well, we can see you're almost done, and you know, it's probably time for us to, to meet together. Let bygones be bygones. So, right? Uh, four different times they invite him like this, and every time his response is the same. You see that? I'm doing a great work here. Why should it stop so that I can come down and visit with you? In other words, what I'm doing is too important to get distracted by all kinds of lesser things. Let me get my job done, and then if you still want to have a meeting, fine. We'll have a meeting. I remember um, having a discussion with a a church uh, on the other side of the river. They, they talked to me uh, about some about some struggles they were having, uh, and they wanted some advice from an outside source. And so they called me, and I told them, "Well, one of the things that you need to understand is you can either do me meetings or you can do ministry, but you very likely can't do both. Um, and if you and the more meetings that you have, the less ministry you're probably going to get done. And Meetings can be a distraction to what you're trying to do. And Nehemiah sees that. He says, look, 
It might be good to have a meeting, but it can wait. I'm going to not get distracted with lesser things because often it is, it is not bad things that become distractions. It can be good things that become a distraction. And he says, this great work is too important to get finished that I can get distracted. I can't be distracted. I can't let the, let the work stop while I go pursue some lesser objective. And when you have important work to finish, you can't allow even good things to prevent you from accomplishing the best things. The best things. So Nehemiah disregards the distraction and he just keeps focusing on the work that God has called him to do. Well, when that fails, his enemies try a new tactic. Having failed at distraction, they decide to go for intimidation. And if you look at verse 5 uh, through verse 9, what you'll see is intimidation at work. Uh, after four different in invitations that all get rejected, Sanballat tries a new tack. He sends an open letter. Now, you may not understand exactly what this means, but in the ancient world, the government documents were almost always sent sealed because they were not meant to be read by anyone other than the recipient. And so what you did was you would write your letter or you would have your scribe write your letter for you, and then you would fold it up, and then you would melt wax over the seam where it was folded, and then you, while the wax was still warm, you would mark it with your seal. And that kept it from being read. That kept the contents private. It was... Uh, ancient Norton antivirus kind of thing, right? And um, and you kept every your communication secure that way, because the idea was only the person who is supposed to read this should be able to open it. And if you broke the seal, that obviously meant your letter had been tampered with. And since your signet ring was unique, there was no way of melting the wax a little bit. <laughs> and and uh, and reading it and so forth, and so it was sent sealed. Well, but when you sent someone an open letter, an open letter is a what? Is a red letter. It's something that people, whoever sees it, can read it. And Sanballat sends it with his servant, probably with instructions, hey, make sure everybody you run into understands the contents of this letter that I'm sending. What's the contents? You know, Nehemiah, I have heard that the reason that you're rebuilding, there's been some rumors that have been circulating around you. Now, he leaves out the fact that he's been the one circulating the rumors. But, uh, but there have been some rumors circulating around you that you are rebuilding because you want to get yourself proclaimed king in Israel and sends, be able to say, once again, there's a king in Judah and you need to have walls around the city to be able to defend yourself from attack. And so your real motivation is your own exaltation, your own power. And by the way, you're leading a rebellion against Emperor Artaxerxes. That's what I've heard. And I've heard that you've even got prophets to go before you and proclaim you king. By the way, was that a legitimate thing? 
It was an illegitimate accusation, but was it something that happened? Yes. Not to Nehemiah. But when men were made king in the Old Testament, they would have a prophet who went before them and announced the coming of the king, right? So when Samuel made David king, he goes before him to announce, here is the king that God has chosen. Right? You may remember from the New Testament, I will send my messenger ahead of you to proclaim your coming. John the Baptist and Jesus, right? To announce that there is a king coming. And so Sanballat accuses Nehemiah of having arranged some prophets for himself to run ahead of him and to say, oh, there's going to be a new king in Judah and it's going to be Nehemiah. Now, this is just a rumor. But what is the point of it? The point is to have this rumor spread and to work its way back to Emperor Artaxerxes. And then uh, for Artaxerxes to go, you know, Nehemiah did seem like he was pretty enthusiastic about getting to Judah. And he is rebuilding the walls. And once the walls are rebuilt, then you can exercise authority over the surrounding area. Maybe he really is leading a rebellion. Well, you can't be too careful. Send the, send the headsman to bring me the head of Nehemiah. Get him killed. And so if, if you can imagine this, the point of this open letter is, uh, is kind of like a meeting with Vito Corleone. You hear me on this? He is trying to make Nehemiah an offer he can't refuse. You had better meet with me. Because if you don't, this rumor may find its way back to Artaxerxes. And if it does, who knows what will happen. Nice little governorship you got there. Be a shame if anything happened to it and you wound up dead because you're a traitor. Intimidation. And by the way, if you had been a participant with Nehemiah in this project, guess what that also made you, according to Sanballat? A traitor. And so the idea is to cause everybody, from Nehemiah at the top all the way down, to stop working on this. Because they don't want to be accused of treason. But what does Nehemiah do? He ignores it. His only response is, you're making this up out of your own head. And none of this has happened. And, uh, and then in addition to that, he prays. He asks the Lord for strength. Do you see that? Verse 9. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Over and over in this book, over and over in this chapter, twice in this chapter, but repeatedly in this book, Nehemiah whenever he faces a serious challenge, goes to the Lord and asks for his help. And these things are interdependent, interlocking things. Why is he able to trust the Lord? Because he's decided, I have got to fulfill what God has called me to do. And why is he focused on fulfilling what God has called him to do? Because he trusts the Lord. 
He's able to just ignore the intimidation and say, look, the Lord has called me to do this. I rely on him. And besides that, I'm completely innocent. And this accusation is completely made up. And since there's no truth to it, I'm just going to continue doing what has been authorized by the king, what has been commanded by God, and I'm going to press ahead. And so he simply ignores it. And then he encounters a new challenge. Because this just keeps ramping up. Pressure keeps getting worse. And when that doesn't work, his enemies decide that they're going to explicitly threaten him. That maybe Nehemiah is a little slow, and maybe he doesn't understand that we're trying to threaten his life here. So they, so they make the death threat explicit. And on top of that, they do so in the most devious, wicked way imaginable. They get a man of God involved. They hire a prophet for themselves, actually more than one, uh, because they mentioned the prophetess Noadiah there at the end uh, of this section, verse 14. She gets mentioned along with the rest of the prophets. But they get this man, Shemaiah, to prophesy uh, against him for pay. And they know Nehemiah is a man of God, so they say, well, we're going to send a fake man of God, a fake prophet, to lead him astray and end the sin. And Shemaiah says, look, you got to go with me right now. we got to go into the temple, man. We're going to save your life. It'll protect you. Now, this is devious on a variety of fronts. You can't see it in your English Bible, but the word there in Hebrew for temple is the word not for the temple complex in general, but for the, the holy place where only the priests could go. Now, if you went in as a non-priest into that area, what was that? Well, that was a serious violation of God's law. There was a king in the, in, in uh, a few hundred years before Nehemiah who tried this, who tried to essentially have himself appointed priest and, and in his self-appointed priesthood to go into this area and to offer sacrifices and so forth like a priest. His name was Uzziah. And in the moment that it happened, he was struck with leprosy and he lost his kingship for the rest of his life. Big deal. Serious sin. And Shemaiah says, well, you know what? You know, I, you know, I know God might have been serious about that kind of thing in the, in the past, but, you know, this is a, this is a new day. And this is a serious situation. You've got to flee into the temple and save your life. Now let me turn the wheel another notch here. You might not know this, but this is the case. Whenever a new king was, uh, was crowned, where did they do that? In the temple. With a prophet. So what would going with Shemaiah look a whole lot like? The accusation that Sanballat has just made is coming true. Because here goes Nehemiah with the prophet to go stand in the temple, right? And on top of that, 
if you were guilty of something, if you were guilty of some serious sin that would normally cost you your life, what you did was you fled to the temple to take hold of the horns of the altar and plead for mercy. So either it looks like whatever happens, they think, if we can get Nehemiah scared enough to go do this, either it will look like the rumor we've started is true, or it will look like Nehemiah recognizes that he's guilty of serious sin and so he needs to go to the temple and beg for mercy, or he will actually go into the temple proper itself and God will deal with him. And any way, any way this works, we win. Like I said, devious and evil to try to get the man of God to do a spiritual thing in the wrong way. Something he's not appointed to. And if he does it, he'll be at a minimum discredited in the eyes of the people. And he may well lose his life. So how does Nehemiah respond? Well, he recognizes what is going on because he has discernment from the Lord sufficient to see through the plot against him. And uh, how does he have that? Because he sought the Lord. His continual habit was to seek the Lord. And in fact, he does that in a, in a verbal way for the second time here in verse 14. He says, Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things. And remember... Noadiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets and what they tried to make me do. In other words, Nehemiah never responds to his enemies in a way that he could. He never responds with force against them. He never tries to raise an army against them or to um, be violent against them as they have tried to be violent against him. What does he do? He trusts the Lord. And he says, God... Remember what they've done and take care of them. Men and women, that is one of the most wonderful responses to even violent opposition against you. You know that? To just say, God, I trust you to deal with them. Your arm is longer. <laughs> and you can reach them in ways that I can't. And so deal with them according to your will. And he keeps building. He just keeps plowing. Keeps building. Keeps going. He refuses to give in to fear. And despite even death threats. He presses forward to fearlessly fulfill his calling from God. And he asks the Lord to deal with his enemies. And then you come to this last section. Verses 15 to 19. Uh, and it has both something really exciting and something really discouraging in the same four verses. On the one hand, you have the exciting thing. The exciting thing is the wall is finished. Yay! In 52 days, they got it done. 52 days. Think about that. The wall, uh, archaeologists tell us, is somewhere between a mile and a half and two and a half miles in circumference all the way around the city of Jerusalem, possibly as much as 40 feet high. With all of these gates and, and, and uh, doors within them that are massive. And 
And 52 days they made it happen. 52 days. And, and that's really good. And there are some other good things that happened. Uh, one is that because they got it done in this kind of a way, all of their enemies even are able to see, along with all of them, that God's good and gracious hand has empowered them for this job. Even their enemies can see. And a second thing we need to see um, is the result of all of this. Verse 16 tells us that all their enemies were put to shame. All the fear and intimidation that they wanted to inflict on Judah here and on Nehemiah ultimately fell on them because the job not only got done, but that once it was done, all of a sudden power would begin to shift. Jerusalem was the most important city on that side of the Jordan River. It was on the major trade routes. It still is. And, and uh, the competitors to it were Ammon, modern-day Ammon in Jordan, and Samaria, where Sanballat ruled. So Sanballat and Tobiah each had an area that they ruled that was the power center. But once the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt, they knew that it would rise in prominence and that their own power relative to it would fall. And it did. And... There is one last important thing we need to see in this section, and that is the discouraging part, which is that Nehemiah had to overcome compromised co-workers. That people who should have been on his side, people who should have been on the team with him, fully and completely devoted to the Lord and carrying out the task, were the whole time partially undermining what they were trying to do. You see that? They have not only allied, the noblemen of Judah have not only allied themselves with Tobiah the Ammonite, who is, let's remember, an idolater, but they have intermarried with him. And they are filling Nehemiah's ears with all of the things Tobiah wants them to say and reporting back what Nehemiah says and does to Tobiah, to their enemy. They had compromised themselves. In fact, if you read the book of Ezra, one of the things you'll see is that many of the prominent people in Judah had intermarried with all of the idolatrous people around them. And in the process of doing that, they had put themselves in danger of staying in exile and being sent back into deeper exile because they had abandoned the Lord. And so all of these, all of these co-workers that Nehemiah has, all these leaders who ought to be with him are only halfway committed because the, on the other half, they're committed to advancing the interests of an idolater. Now, nevertheless, Nehemiah and those who were faithful overcame all of these 
all of these obstacles and it's because they trusted the Lord and he empowered their ministry, their work until it was done. And they fearlessly fulfilled their calling until it was done. Now, I hope you've been able to follow me as we walk through this text together and that you probably already have some idea of where I'm going with this and how it applies to us. Because I think that this text points us not just to, to an example of God's faithfulness in the past, but uh, to some application for us as we seek to fulfill our calling from God of rebuilding Chillicothe Bible Church and its ministries as we emerge from the pandemic, as we come out of all of the restrictions that have been on us. But let me make the point really explicit. We are called to make Jesus known. Amen? And we are called as an aspect of that to make disciples of all nations, beginning right where we are, right where we live, and rippling out from there all over the world, all over the entire globe. We have a global mission to fulfill. And it begins here, and it goes out from here, everywhere else. And along the way, as we fulfill that mission, and by the way, it's not something that will be done in 52 days. It is something that we work at together until either we die and go home to Jesus or Jesus comes back to get us. One way or the other. That's, that's when you know your mission is fulfilled, is when you have either died and see Jesus, or when Jesus comes back and you see Jesus, right? One way or the other, that's when your mission is done. Um, but we are going to, along the way, as we fulfill our mission, we're going to encounter some challenges. And in fact, many of them may be the sum of the same challenges that we see right here. Certainly, there will be distractions. Many of them might even be good things. We live in a world that is custom designed to distract us from fulfilling the mission God has laid on us. We have Netflix and Hulu and Paramount Plus and the internet and stuff in our pocket. We can watch funny cat videos over the entire day if we so choose, right? We have all the knowledge of human history in our, on a device in our pocket, and we use it to watch cat videos, right? Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, but we, uh, you know, we have a, we have a tendency to be distracted, to be very excited that our kids get involved in extracurricular activities, and those are not bad. My kids are in a lot of them but to focus to the point on those that we get distracted and have no time for fulfilling the mission that God has given. We, we get to pursuing hobbies and uh, making money and all of those things, and none of those are bad. But if you give your life to them, they can become a distraction from fulfilling your calling. We've got to disregard distractions, focus on the mission. And in addition to that, 
uh, it's likely that as our culture continues to turn away from God's revealed truth in the Bible, that we will probably someday face intimidation. There are already organizations that are Christian or that had been historically very faithful to following Christ and proclaiming His truth into the world that have already knuckled under to the world's intimidation. And have said, well, we want to fulfill our mission and so that means we can't be biblically distinctive in how we do it. We have to adopt the world's values instead of our proclaiming our own. And when, we, when we're in a world in which the, the two primary competitors for worldview are either everything that Jesus said is true and his word is true and the Holy Spirit reveals truth uh, to us or alternatively, I define what is true for me and it's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure approach to life. Choose-your-own-adventure is the one that's currently winning. And those who believe in that are increasingly going to view those of us who believe in this and as bigots, as narrow-minded, as puritanical, as whatever. And they will try to intimidate you into shutting up and telling you, you can't say that anymore. That's canceled. The gospel cannot be canceled. It must not be. It is the only hope for the world. It is the only hope for the world. And if you lose your job because you proclaim the gospel to a co-worker, then lose your job. And if you... And if you, uh, you know, lose social prestige or friends on Facebook because you would not bend on the idea that God reveals truth and we don't get to vote on it, so be it. But don't be intimidated. Trust the Lord. Amen? There may be, I don't know that this will happen. I hope not. There may, be, there may come a day in this country, believe it or not, when we will face death threats. If it happens, by the way, it will not be unique in world history. Uh, talk to some of our friends who serve in difficult places around the world, and they'll tell you death threats are just part of the deal. If you're a Christian, you just expect that that's going to happen. And there may come a day when you face death threats because you are faithfully following Jesus and carrying out his mission in the world. And if they come, then guess what your calling is? To faithfully and fearlessly trust the Lord and make disciples and preach Jesus anyway. Amen? To trust the Lord and do it anyway. I never thought we would ever live to see the day in, in this country where we would ever see churches shut down for any reason. But now we have established the principle that the government can, in the name of safety, shut down churches. 
Do you think it is possible that, that the definition of safety will be shifted from biological risk pandemic to some other thing such as this makes me feel unsafe, therefore these people can't operate? I'm not saying it will happen. I'm not a prophet. But, it, but could it happen? Sure it could. And if it does, what will be our job? faithfully fulfill our calling to make disciples of all nations in the world. Beginning where we are and going out from here. And there will certainly be compromised co-workers. People who carry the name Christian. People who identify themselves as followers of Jesus but who have compromised with those who are idolaters on fundamental areas of truth and right and wrong, and who God is, and what the gospel is, and whether the scriptures are true or not. There already are. There are many, many people who have compromised already on whether, in the beginning, God created male and female. On whether or not the, the Bible is the word of God. On whether or not the gospel is the exclusive means of salvation. on whether or not uh, your sexual morality matters to God and, what, and who gets to define what constitutes that. There are all kinds of compromises that have already been made by people who name the name of Jesus. Amen? And despite that, and it's discouraging when somebody does, I read about them and I go can't believe another person decided they were going to abandon what God said. But what's our calling? Whatever happens, we're going to trust the Lord. We're going to fulfill His ministry until we die or Jesus comes. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for your word, we thank you for Nehemiah's example and the example of the faithful ones with him who rebuilt and who received your blessing and who trusted you despite overwhelming difficulties and challenges. Father, we are not facing the same kinds of challenges whatsoever that Nehemiah faced. No one's threatening our life at the moment. Nobody is trying to intimidate us at the moment. Um, Father, we face many difficulties and challenges all the same. And Father, when whatever comes, we pray that our response would be the same as theirs was in those ancient days. That we would pray and trust you and fulfill the calling you've laid on our lives. And Father, we pray that as we sing, that we might commit ourselves to this, being faithful until the day we see Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.